You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come warm yourself by the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Uh, tonight, and for the full two hours, we'll unravel... The RFK Assassination, Lisa Pease, the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, is standing by. And uh, it promises to be quite an evening. Uh, Not to mention the fact that we have a super blood wolf moon lunar eclipse coming. The only total lunar eclipse of 2019. It'll light up the sky across North America, South America, as well as parts of Europe, Africa, and Asia. The whole enchilada, we all get to see this amazing show, and it's uh, being referred to uh, by a variety of names, but of course, the best has to be Super Blood Wolf Moon. And the, the super refers to the fact that the moon will be closest to the Earth in its orbit when the total eclipse takes place. Blood is a reference to the reddish hue the moon will take on during the eclipse. And wolf, I didn't know this, wolf is taken from the old farmer's almanac as full moon Moons in January, full moons in January, are apparently known as full wolf moons. And if you want to watch it live, uh, NASA says that the edge of the moon will begin, or it, well, it did begin to enter the, uh, the Earth's uh, penumbra, the outer section of the shadow, at about 6.30 p.m. Pacific or 9.39 Eastern. So that was a few hours ago. And then over the cor- course of... Uh, Uh, that next hour, the moon started to dim as it traveled through the penumbra. Uh, Then at 10.30 Eastern, the moon reached the umbra, at which point it became significantly darker. And uh, now at 11, well, in about 40 minutes' time, the moon will be all the way inside the umbra. And that's when the eclipse truly begins. So at about 20 minutes to midnight, or 38 minutes from now, and the best view will occur at 12, 12 a.m. Eastern. All right, there you go. There's your, uh, your uh, full uh, wolf blood moon or blood wolf moon eclipse uh, update. Now, quick programming note. No live stream tonight on our YouTube channel, uh, Strange Planet. But we will be streaming live next week. January 27th, and that'll be uh, two hours with former U.S. Secret Service uh, Service agent Gary Byrne. 
In a lie too big to fail, longtime Kennedy researcher of both JFK and RFK, Lisa Peace, lays out in meticulous detail how witnesses with evidence of conspiracy were silenced by the Los Angeles Police Department, how evidence was deliberately altered and in some instances destroyed, and how the justice system and the media failed to present the truth of the case to the public. Peace reveals how the trial was essentially a sham and how the prosecution did not dare to follow where the evidence led. A lie too big to fail asserts the idea that a government can never investigate itself in a crime of this magnitude. Was the convicted Sirhan Sirhan a willing participant, or was he a mind-controlled assassin? It's fallen to independent researchers like Peace to lay out the evidence in a clear and concise manner, allowing readers to form their theories about this event. Peace places the history of this event in the context of the era and provides shocking overlaps between the high-profile murders and attempted murders of the time. Lisa Peace goes further than anyone else in proving who likely planned the assassination, who the assassination team members were, and why Kennedy was deemed such a threat that he had to be taken out before he became President of the United States. Lisa Peace is the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Based on more than two decades of investigative research, Peace's recently published book has already been hailed as the magnum opus of RFK assassination research by the acclaimed author of JFK and the Unspeakable, James Douglas. Peace was previously published in a collection of essays titled The Assassinations, Probe Magazine on JFK, MLK, RFK, and Malcolm X with our good friend James Eugenio. Lisa Peace, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great, although I'm, I have to say I'm a little disappointed I'm not going to get to see the blood moon. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. But I have seen it before, and it really is spectacular. So ah. not that I want to lose any viewers, but, you know, take... Take your radio outside and take a look, because it is a beautiful sight to see. Exactly. Or just take your radio over to the window, at, at uh, the very least. There you go. Lisa, I've got to ask you about this uh, this big announcement. Um, my, ah, yes. My understanding is that you, members of the Kennedy family, members of the King family, all calling for sort of a Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Tell me more about this. Yes. David Talbot, the former founder of Salon Magazine, Salon.com, got together like the, the biggest lights in the JFK and RFK and MLK research community. We reached out to people we knew in the King and the Kennedy families, and because the feeling is that there are still witnesses whose stories have never even been recorded, who saw or heard really important things, and, you know, before they die, it's like this is the last chance to get a lot of information on the record. There are people who have come forward and said, I have information, but I only want to give it to a credible investigation. And it is historic in that it's the first time that members of the King and the Kennedy family called not just for an investigation into their own cases, but into an investigation of literally each of the four big assassinations of the 1960s, which was President Kennedy, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy, the last two, a couple months apart in 1968, and after which the country basically had a nervous breakdown. I, I don't think there's any better way to describe it. Right. Uh, so this is this is truly a historic moment, and 
you know, I'm hoping tomorrow being Martin Luther King Day that the media will give it the appropriate treatment. Because I've had people say to me over the years, well, if any of this is true, how come the King family hasn't said it? Or how come the, the Kennedy family hasn't said it? Well, now they're saying it. They're saying it. They're saying it. They're saying these were all conspiracies. They were all not investigated properly. And they're calling for a public inquiry, kind of modeled on the South African Truth and Reconciliation Movement, in the hopes of lobbying for actual, you know, prosecutions or legal action where possible. Now, we're, we're more than 50 years after these events, so a lot of the people who were directly involved are dead. Uh, you know, but there, there may still be a few people, and I am all in favor of trying people in absentia. I mean, even after death, I think the best deterrent to losing future leaders to assassinations is to really expose at a deep level every conspirator, how it was done. Every time you expose and prosecute somebody, again, even posthumously, it makes it that much harder because no one wants that in their legacy. It's like they want to get away with it forever. Right. They don't want to get away with it just for a few years, and then the grandchildren find out what horrible people they were. Right. Well, yeah. and ultimately, and, and even aside from naming names, it's it's just it's absolutely essential if the country is to move forward that they know the, the truth as uncomfortable and ugly as it may be. Exactly. We I, A lot of us walk around in kind of a dignified version of the world, and everything's hunky-dory, and America is the best and the brightest, and nothing bad happens here. And of course, we all know that's just not true. No, I mean, I do believe... And it's I not be- healthy to no. go around with that kind of attitude. I agree. I believe in the... Uh, I believe in the idea of American exceptionalism. It hasn't obtained it yet, but the foundation is there if it, you know, would choose to follow that path. Um, however... Uh, I, I, I always maintain that nothing really has changed in the way the world operates from the Middle Ages, which was, you know, very mm. bloody, very violent. You had kings and queens killing, you know, brothers and sisters and, and, and infanticide and all that nastiness. Now they just simply use far more sophisticated methods. Um, yes. I got to ask you, though, about how this journey began for you, because you were at the time kind of more of a JFK assassination researcher, and, and you went looking for more information on JFK. And, right. And the live, when I was at that. Yeah, tell me the story. At, this is amazing. Yeah, I used to work uh, very, like, a couple blocks away from the downtown central Los Angeles library. And so what else do you do on your lunch hour but go to the library and read microfilm? Because I'm a little geeky that way. <laughs> God bless the I, geeks. Because I was going through microfilm on the JFK case, one day I pulled out the quote-unquote wrong drawer, and I recognized immediately what it was. I knew just a little bit about the Robert Kennedy assassination, and one of the things I knew is that they'd had this group called Special Unit Senator, and they had investigated the case, and then they'd locked up all their files from 1968 until 1988. And this was about 1992. So I, I thought, wow, that microfilm's only been out for about four years I bet not a lot of people have looked in it, and I bet if I go through it, I'll find things that other people haven't found yet. And so I just pulled out a reel. They weren't labeled in any way, so I you know, just grabbed one from the middle of the pack and threw it in the machine. And the first few documents I read were talking about a second suspect who was apprehended at the hotel that night, a guy who was literally taken into custody and put in handcuffs, and that was Michael Wayne. And I'm like, well, who is this, and why have I never heard about him? And so the curiosity, as I started reading that, it didn't at all match the official story, which told us there was only one shooter and he did all the shots. And 
And so this, the more I dug into it, the more I realized what a big story it was and how completely different it was. And at first, I was just personally very interested. I never had any intention of writing a book when I started. That was just the furthest thing from my mind. I couldn't imagine how much work it was to write a book and didn't have any desire to do that. But I was starting to write little articles for Probe magazine, so I ended up writing a few articles on the case that were very uh, highly cited and, and used across the Internet, and that led to an appearance um, on the Discovery Channel. Years ago, they did a, a very good little piece on the assassinations, and they interviewed me and several of the other authors on the case. And they do what they call a survey, you know, where they get different people's opinions. And I'm like, instead of a survey of opinions why don't you actually investigate the case? And they're like, well, that's not what we do. Because <laughs> that's much more difficult. So a survey of opinions is very easy. You go, you know, get a bunch of people on tape and then you quote them. That's a survey. That's what most documentaries are. And then you figure out whose opinion you want to feature or elevate and whose you don't. But a real investigation takes time. And I, I tell people, they don't understand. It's like journalists don't have a lot of free time. They're given stories every day. So to expect a journalist to dig into this in any depth and be able to understand it is really asking a lot. And uh, I had 25 years of side time, you know, after work, at my lunch hour, you know, on my weekends, where I just looked into it on my own. And it, frankly, it wasn't until Shane O'Sullivan's book came out, which was a very good book, by the way. Definitely recommend that. Uh, but it didn't go far enough with what I knew. And I thought, dang, I'm really going to have to write a book now because I was really hoping he would, like, pull out some of the what I thought were the important pieces of the case as I had come to discover them. And, for example, I found a third shooter on the table because there was – Sirhan was firing a gun. Somebody was firing a gun right next to Kennedy. Uh, but there was a third shooter on the table that three credible witnesses saw and a fourth one probably saw from his description. And, again, this is a story not in anyone else's book. So, like I said, I had no intention of writing a book, but the weight of what I had learned began to weigh on me, and I felt a responsibility to tell the story. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about Sirhan Sirhan, uh, because Robert Kennedy Jr., uh, in the last five, six months, I guess, went to visit a Sirhan Sirhan. I set Sirhan. that up. I set that you up. You set that up? I I, yes, Bobby Kennedy got in touch with me uh, for something about American values that he was working on. And we had a little conversation and he, you know, kind of hit it off and he had me back to help him with a part of his book. And I was trying to show him the part about the Castro assassination plots, which are often uh, blamed on Robert Kennedy, even though in the CIA's own internal inspector general report, they make it very clear that they knew they had no authority from the Kennedys for these plots. And they say in their own language, can we claim executive authority for these plots and answer their own question, not in this case? And then they add, while it is true that there was kind of this intense atmosphere of do something about Castro, we did only tell them about the plots that had ended. We didn't tell them anything about the plots that were continuing. And Bobby had always felt that, and he'd even gone to um, Cuba and talked to Castro, and he had come to the same conclusion, but he didn't know about this CIA document proving that. So, you know, I sat shoulder to shoulder with him, and, and we were talking about the RFK case, of course. And I said, well, would you like to talk to Sergei? I said, I could put you in touch with his, his lawyer. And he's like, yes, absolutely. So I got on the phone. I called Lori Dusick, who 
flew out to California because he can't get into Caesarhan unless one of his lawyers is present. And uh, they, you know, drove down and went and spoke to him. And I called him, you know, the next day. I'm like, well, what would you think? And he said, he's a sweet man. You know, I I think he's as much a victim, you know, as my father. And I, I quoted that in my book. I'm, I'm sure I'm misquoting it now, but it's it's close to that. And the, the little episode, there's a little bit about that in my book. But do, are we, were you surprised that it had taken Bobby Jr. so long to... to to want, I mean, he must. No. He must have had these nagging no, and, questions. And, and, and of course, I asked him. You know, what took you so long? Because he's kind of apologized. He's like, "I'm really sorry that none of us have come forward sooner." And he said, "Honestly, I didn't believe any of this until probably two or three years ago, when Paul Schrade, one of the pantry victims, said, yes. look, I was a friend of your father. You know, I'm not going to live forever, and you really need to see this evidence.'" And Bobby is a very smart man. He's a legal, you know, a lawyer. This is what he does for a living. He actually has a job. He doesn't just sit around and, you know, coast on his, his Kennedy fortune. You know, he actually works. And uh, and he's, like I said, he's a very bright man. He's one of the, the brightest people I've ever talked to in the sense that, as I explained the case, he grasped some of the more nuanced, detailed, intricate parts of it more quickly than almost anybody I'd talked to. So it was really fun. And, and you can imagine my excitement at finally being able to discuss the case with a member of the Kennedy family. I mean, that was just like the happiest moment of my entire life. Did, did and, and Robert Jr. leave his meeting with Sirhan con- convinced or uh, that, that Sirhan well, did not shoot his he, father? He's, he's convinced that he was... Uh, I'm going to let him answer that because he will be answering that. So I'm going to let him answer that in his own words. But I will also say he has not yet read my book. He's apologized to me for not yet reading it, but he's like, I'm in court until March, and then I'll read it. So, uh, But he will have a lot to say about that case in the months and years to come, and I, I know that for a fact. Uh, so, yeah, I don't want to preempt him on anything. Right. What about other members of the, of the Kennedy family? What about well, Caroline? Kathleen, what? Kathleen Kennedy Townsend has also joined the call, and... Uh, some of the other members, here's the thing. I had a call from somebody who claimed to be a very close Kennedy family friend and said a lot of them are aware of your research, but they're really terrified. And that person said that Ted Kennedy had gone to the family after Bobby was killed and said, we're not going to look into this anymore. We're not going to talk about it. And because I think they all felt that talking about it was what got Bobby killed because Bobby was seriously investigating quietly, somewhat under the hood, but he was seriously investigating the JFK assassination. Right. Well, some people say that that's what got it. some people say that's what got John Jr. killed. Yes, because he too was looking into it. You know, he'd been in touch with one of the better researchers. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody quiet and under the hood that most people never even heard of, and uh, who had some really interesting documents. And I, I, I always want to say it's not any one thing. I don't believe it's like somebody's going to be killed for just one thing. I really think. All three Kennedys were killed because they represent a worldview that is incompatible with the power structure of today. The power structure of today says America has the right to invade foreign countries and steal their resources if it benefits our business class and the quality of life of Americans. Then it's our right to go trash other nations, basically. That's kind of the dominant worldview. Now, the Kennedys' view was more we have the right to cooperate with other nations and to barter and, and, you know, do what we can to lower the prices of their resources. But they, they were offering economic aid, educational aid, food, 
in exchange uh, for treaties as opposed to, you know, purely military gun float aid. Depl- they, yeah, gun they were not about the arms sales. They were about trying to right. elevate the lives of everyone. And that worldview doesn't make the people at the highest rungs of power, which are not the people we elect. They're way above that. Now, let me... There's a funny book. Yes. All right. I just want to say there's okay. a funny book about David Rockefeller where they talk about how he would never stand when the president came in the room because he knew he would still be in power once they were gone. Right, right. They, that's, they said that when, when the Queen visited the United States, she would visit David Rockefeller before the president. Uh, now, <laughs> let me ask you, we're, we're heading into a break here very shortly, but let me just ask you quickly about Sirhan, and we'll get into this more after the break. Uh, I, I want to talk about Sirhan Sirhan in the weeks leading up to the assassination at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. He worked at a, a mm-hmm. racetrack, correct? I'm sorry. He, he worked, worked at uh, a he he had worked at a horse farm ah, okay. where they trained the racetrack horses. He didn't work at the racetrack, right? And that job had ended a year earlier when he had a serious fall from a horse, and he got kicked and trampled. So he had a lot of internal injuries. Um, but he did not have any brain damage. They tested him extensively for that before the trial. No brain damage, you know, no no conditions. And in fact, the doctor said his his injuries, you know, were painful but not very serious. And what I found was very odd then is if they weren't that serious, how come he went to the doctor every month and sometimes twice a month for the next thirteen months? Exactly. If I get bruised and battered, I don't go to the doctor every month. For the next this is where it all begins. All right, Lisa, stay put. That's we'll come back. Think. We'll come back in a moment and uh, continue to delve into the RFK assassination. Lisa Peace, my guest, the author of A Lie, Too Big to Fail, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Lisa Peace stays with us for the full two hours. And uh, she is uh, the author of a book. It's already being hailed as a magnum opus. Uh, It is A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. And um, we were talking about uh, Sirhan Sirhan's history prior to um, that fateful evening at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles in uh, June of 1968. Mm-hmm. And um, so he's seeing this doctor regularly uh, every month. Um, so, Well, and I don't know which doctor he was seeing, because it was FBI reports that he had been to a doctor. I didn't dig into the doctor himself, but the doctor who had treated him initially thought the, the wounds were rather minor. So that does suggest that he's not just going to a regular doctor, that something else is going on. Right. Tell me about Sir... Oh, go go ahead. Finish, Finish, please. Yeah. I was just going to say, a lot of people in the pantry thought Sir Hans seemed to be in an altered state. He seemed unnaturally calm and unnaturally strong, because although he's a a very little guy, he's 5'4 and slight, 
but Rosie Greer, who's a huge football tackle, had trouble getting the gun from him. And the people who were wrestling with him, it took like six people to subdue him and pin him to a table. And it's something that under hypnosis, people have noticed acts of extreme strength that are not present in normal behavior. Fascinating. It's like your mind isn't interfering with your ability, right. you know, the way maybe it does when we're not under hypnosis. And even after his arm is pinned to the steam table by Rosie Greer, uh, he still is firing almost robotically his Iverson 8-shot. Um, right. And we'll come back well, to that in a moment. But I want to yeah. ask you about his, but also his interest in hypnosis. Uh, you, you talk about Sirhan Sirhan. Was it, he, he was attending uh, sort of hip, hypnotist shows and so forth? Well, he had gone to um, the Rosicrucian meeting in, in Pasadena where they had done a hypnosis, a hypnosis show, and I think he volunteered for that, as I recall. And he was not so much interested in hypnotism, per se. He was interested in controlling his own mind. And, uh, you know, here he was, an immigrant who had bad grades in college because his sister was dying, and he had to miss a lot of classes to take care of her. So his grades suffered. So he wasn't able to kind of move up the chain, the ladder, the way most people. He didn't have the opportunities most people did. So he was looking into different ways of manifesting money into his life, and he read Rosicrucian literature that's like, if you write it down, it will happen. And so, you know, he was practicing different ways of trying to bring money to him. Or so they say, because here's the problem. Once somebody has been hypnotized, it's hard for them to know which of their behavior was real and which was a product of hypnotic suggestion. So we could say, well, it was Sirhan's interest in hypnosis that got him into this mess, or we could say somebody got him into this mess and made it look like it was his interest in hypnosis. And this is where we really don't know. So for a large part of my book, I actually leave Sirhan out of it in the sense that I really try and figure out what happened, and then towards the end, what was Sirhan's role. Because for listeners who don't know the story, you know, there's a very simple official explanation. Robert Kennedy had just finished a speech in the embassy ballroom at the Ambassador Hotel. He walks through a narrow pantry area. Sirhan steps out in front of him, fires a gun at him. Kennedy falls. He dies 26 hours later. Sirhan is immediately taken into custody. The police say there's only one gunman. And, you know, case closed. And that's basically what most of the public knew for and, and many no, years. And no real trial. And, know. Right. And no real trial and, because, because Sirhan, uh, I guess on the advice of his lawyers, pleaded guilty, right? Right. Because he, he was asked to plead guilty in the hopes of sparing him the death penalty. Because there was a death penalty in California for many years. Now, Sirhan benefited from a change in the law which removed the death penalty, because otherwise he'd be dead by now. Right. But that law uh, was changed, and uh, so he's still alive. He's still in jail. I talked to his brother, Munir. Um, in fact, Sir Han is reading my book <laughs> in jail. Isn't it interesting, so, uh, Lisa, how in these profile, big-profile assassinations, uh, there is never a trial. The, the, perp- the alleged perpetrator is either uh, killed, uh, or they plead guilty, uh, or... Uh, well, those are the two big ones, right? They plead guilty, or there's never a trial. Well, of course, there was a trial in the Sirhan case, but it was not It was not a real trial. It was very much a show trial in the sense that the, the defense team for Sirhan, in their opening statement, said, yes, he shot Kennedy, but... <laughs> 
the whole point of the trial was to determine the level of guilt of Sirhan. And what really upset me as I read through the trial transcript is they couldn't even prove the bullets came from Sirhan's gun. And I got to this point, and I'm like, now, wait a minute. <laughs> if Sirhan didn't shoot any bullets, how guilty is he? And was his role really to be the distractor and not the assassin? And, you know, it's clear. If you look at the evidence, and, oh, my gosh, I just have so much of it in my book, a number of witnesses, like, I want to say eight or 12 at a minimum in my book, and there were many more I didn't quote, thought Sirhan was firing blanks or caps. And some of these people are really credible, like mm -hmm. people who had been in the military and really knew their guns, or Rafer Johnson, who had been in, you know, hundreds of uh, sporting events. And he said it looked like a cap pistol throwing off, you know, it looked like a starter pistol throwing off residue. Uh, people described a little shower of paper after the shots, and that's what happens, a piece of paper that's all wadded up into, you know, a blank and stuffed in a shell, flash burns as it's ejected, and it creates a visible flame, which a number of witnesses reported seeing from his gun. Real bullets don't create a visible flame because there's no paper burning to create that visible flame. And so the more I read, the more I realized Sirhan was not a shooter of anybody. He was firing blanks. And then the question is, what level of guilt do you assign if he's still part of the conspiracy? And that's where the hypnosis really comes in. If he was hypnotized, did he understand at any level, under hypnosis or not, that he was participating in a Robert Kennedy assassination? Right. Because there's, you know, it, they say, and this is true, you can't make somebody do something in hypnosis against their will. But what they never tell you is you can fool people into thinking the circumstances are different. And that's how you get people to do things against their will. Maybe he so thought I he was at a firing you, range. I put you under hypnosis, pardon? Maybe he thought under hypnosis he was at a firing range. Well, and that's what his uh, Dan Brown, who's one of the country's experts on hypnosis, uh, Sirhan's current attorneys, William Pepper and Lori Dusick, hired Dan Brown to sit with Sirhan for about 60 hours and just listen to him. Because what he had been hypnotized by his defense attorneys, but the hypnosis was terrible. It was like, Sirhan, look at Robert Kennedy coming towards you. Well, he didn't see that under hypnosis. Sirhan, reach for your gun and shoot him. What are you, what, what, what are you feeling, Sirhan? You know, it's like it wasn't open-ended at all. It's very much leading the witnesses. It's kind of appalling, actually. And uh, so what Dan Brown did was completely different. Where are you now? What's happening? What do you see? Is anybody around you? He asked completely open-ended questions. And the story that unfolded under Dan Brown's prompting is that a voluptuous girl in a polka dot dress mm. seductively, you know, kind of came on to Surahan. He was totally, you know, enamored of her. He thought he was going to get lucky that night. He follows her around like a puppy. She takes him into the pantry, and they get up on a tray stand, which is, is a fairly strong piece of equipment, and it could support the two of them. Vince DiPiero, one of the witnesses of the pantry, notices this girl in a polka dot dress with Sirhan. He didn't know his name was Sirhan, but he saw the guy with the girl in the polka dot dress, and he said the girl seemed to be holding him, and they seemed to be talking to each other. Suddenly, Kennedy comes in. Sirhan and the girl move towards the middle of the room. Sirhan steps forward as if he's going to, you know, uh, shake Kennedy's hand, but then the girl pinches him in a way that suddenly triggers him feeling like he was back at the target range. He'd spent six hours at a target range that day and also a few days prior. He'd, 
you know, literally been shooting, and again, probably under hypnotic suggestion at that time, too. But all of a sudden, all Sirhan saw in that room was targets, and that's what he was firing at, if we're to believe what he said. And now, if he's lying, what is he lying about? You know, it's like, it's been so long, there's literally no one to protect. Like, you know, it, it doesn't make sense that he's lying. And the people who have interviewed him, even the police, his first interviewer is like, he's telling the truth about he, what he remembers, but... He honestly didn't remember what happened in the pantry until he was put under hypnosis, and then he couldn't remember it the way he was questioned by Bernard Diamond, his first you know, hypnotist. But under Dan Brown, it became clear. And then, so he's firing at targets after the girl touches him, and the next thing he remembers is being choked and coming out of the hypnosis just briefly, because he's literally like dying at that point, and going, oh my gosh, I have a gun, I must have shot somebody. And then he's kind of back under for a while. And in fact, I, I quote extensively from his uh, conversations with the police for the next three hours after his arrest, because it's bizarre. And they ask him simple questions. Are you married? And he says, I don't know. And they're like, well, what's your name? And he doesn't give them a name. And is this the car you drove? I don't know. I don't remember. And they're like, how can you not remember the car you drove? And that's when William Jordan, one of the sergeants, questioned him, kind of stuck up for Surrey and said, well, he seems to be honest on what he does remember. He will tell you, but he doesn't seem to remember things. And right. while he did remember, he, he remembers this giant urn of coffee. Have we made too much of the coffee pot? Some have suggested, some researchers, maybe there was rohypnol or something in there, but maybe that wasn't. Oh, it, it wasn't in the coffee, but there was, uh, there was a bartender at, and uh, if Kennedy had gone the original route, which was down the stairs and to the left out the backstage, if he'd gone straight off the stage and to the left instead of straight off the stage and to the right, he would have gone downstairs. There were witnesses who said there was a makeshift bar right there, and a woman had actually gone up to get a drink at that makeshift bar, and a girl in a polka dot dress with a turned-up nose intercepted her and said, oh, you're not going to get served at this end. And, and she's like, well, watch me. And, you know, but it ended up that the girl took her money and took it to probably the real bartender, because it looks like this might have been a fake bartender, and then returned shortly thereafter with their drinks, toast to our next president without naming him, and walks away. And they didn't think anything about that at the time until they heard the police were looking for a girl in a polka dot dress. And then they remembered the conversation because she was with her sister and and they're like, yeah, it was kind of funny. She didn't name who we were toasting. But in that same interview, this is Eve Hansen as the witness. I got to jump in here. Three men. Lisa, I got to jump in. Pardon my interruption. Oh, That's all right. We'll pick up on this point when we come back. Lisa Peace, the RFK assassination, right here on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Lisa Peace, a lie too big to fail. 
the real history of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. And uh, some big news. Um, members of the King family, the Kennedy family, have all signed on to this uh, statement, a joint statement, um, along with many other uh, assassination researchers, to uh, push for a Truth and Reconciliation Committee. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit um, more. Uh, just a reminder that Lisa w- is with us for the full two hours, and we will open up the phone lines at the uh, the top of the hour and take your questions and comments. Now back to Sirhan Sirhan. Um, w- okay. Yeah, I wanted you to finish so we were, up your we were, point. You asked about the coffee urn, and I was talking about there was a, a bar downstairs, and in under hypnosis with this Dan Brown, Sirhan felt like he knew that bartender. He's like, we could communicate without words as if they had a prior relationship. And he was seen walking around with a milky liquid, and somebody specifically described a red candy in it, not a maraschino cherry. And maybe the guy didn't know what a maraschino cherry was or, you know, it looked like, but maybe it really was a red candy. There was scopolamine, a very uh, hypnotic drug that uh, came in candy form at that point in time. See, I had experimented with different, you know, combinations of drugs and hypnosis uh, because, under hypnosis, some of the memory, it may be recoverable, but with drugs in hypnosis, it's often the case where the memory was not recoverable, you know, later. And that would be important for a covert operation if that's what it was. And Eve Hansen, when she was down at this bar, she noticed three men who looked, you know, after the fact, kind of like Sirhan, dark, curly, young-haired men just sitting against the wall motionless. And she thought that was so odd. And didn't know what they were doing there. And I'm thinking that was the, the downstairs team. You know, I in my book, I, I go into a lot of other witnesses, and it appears there were two teams. There were even two girls in a polka dot dress that were drawing attention all night, but they looked very different. Because they didn't so know which route. With a they, straight nose and <laughs> because they didn't know which route Bobby would take. Right. They didn't know until the last minute. And it was clear that they didn't, they had to get him there because it was the last big primary. And once he became the nominee, which was a very good chance at the convention in Chicago, then he would have had extra protection. It would have been that much harder to get him. And plus, it would have been that much more suspicious. At right. this point, he was still, you know, not quite, you know, it, it was easier to sell the story that some crazy, you know, kid got into the kitchen and killed him. Well, here's the, other, here's the other thing, tell. Lisa. I mentioned, you know, um, there's never a trial in these cases. The other thing is they change the parade route. With uh, with Kennedy, of course, we know they changed the parade right. Route. Oh, and I really want to shoot that down in the RFK case because, like I said, they didn't have to change the route. It really didn't matter. They planned for every contingency. In fact, ah, I even quote but, uh, Eugenio, uh, what is his name, Martinez, one of the Watergate burglars, and E. Howard Hunt uh, co-wrote an article talking about how how careful you plan for covert operations. It, it used to be called the Directorate of Plans. They do planning. They map out every possible contingency. They rehearse it over and over. In fact, one of the witnesses in my book might have heard one such rehearsal. She heard noise behind the stage. Kennedy wasn't speaking. It was a few days earlier. But she heard enough noise that she went backstage to find out what was going on. And she found a bunch of young, dark-haired, you know, curly-haired men uh, one of which looked very much like Sirhan, but couldn't have been Sirhan. And they were, like, drawing things on the floor and talking to each other in a language she didn't recognize. And she didn't, you know, I, I can't remember if she said she didn't think it was Spanish. I, I could be mixing that up with another witness. Uh, but it's it's very possible this thing was rehearsed. In fact, several members of the team that I described were there June 2nd, which was a couple of days before the primary 
Also, somebody saw what appeared to be Sirhan, but was probably a lookalike, up in Oregon. A guy had bumped into a guy who was a dead ringer for Sirhan at a time where Sirhan couldn't have been there, and the guy had a gun, and he could feel it when he bumped into him. So it's as if they did try several times to get him, and they only succeeded this last time. I mean, that's the other thing. People think it's like, well, you know, if they're that bad, you know, how come they were able to pull it off? It's like, well, they didn't the first three right. times. Well, it's they, like JFK and the last time. like in JFK, right. they wanted to get him in Miami and they tried to get him in Chicago. Uh, right. And there seems to be a D.C. plot earlier that summer, too. Yeah. It's like they tried three times and it failed. And the fourth one, they got him in Dallas. But let me just come back to the parade yeah. route. You say it doesn't matter. And I agree that they had planned for either location. But the, here's the key. If Sirhan Sirhan did this on his own, how could he have known that Kennedy suddenly was going to be directed through through the the pantry and to be there. Oh, yeah. Well, if Sirhan did it on his own, you know, then all the evidence doesn't fit. Yeah, it's like I don't even want to go down that route because it's clear he didn't. And, and when I say it's clear he didn't, again, the witnesses who saw them both put Sirhan about two to his, his gun muzzle, because the police were very specific about that. They asked, where was the gun muzzle relative to Kennedy? And the witnesses who saw them both at the same time put the muzzle two to three feet away. And to the left, right? There were right? people who saw a gun up next to Kennedy, but they could never connect Sirhan to it. And there was a gun right up next to Kennedy because right. somebody killed him from that close distance. Powder burns behind was, his ear. Powder burns behind his ear. Right, right. And he was shot not just behind the ear at a very close distance, but he was shot three more times in kind of the, the back right underarm area. One shot went right through the coat, but the other two went through his body. One went literally through his body and out. Another one lodged at the base of his neck. Uh, but these were those shots, according to Dwayne Wolfer, who was the criminalist for the LAPD and did a lot of shenanigans with the evidence. But he said in court that he thought those shots were probably made at a quarter of an inch. I mean, we're talking literally the gun is right up against the body practically. But he said, I multiplied the distance to get three quarters of an inch, and then I padded it a little just to make it, you know, to out to three inches. But what he really says is he started with a quarter of an inch, and he thought that was the right amount. And he just added the others kind of by, you know, to try and make it right. more credible that Sirhan could possibly have gotten that close. How could they have botched the, well, that's uh, a rhetorical question, I suppose, but the, 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 the ballistics here, they, can, can, yeah, they well, cannot match yeah. the bullets to the gun. Uh, talk to me about the ballistics. Yeah, this is this is really significant, and that's that right after the autopsy. This is the first time that Wolfer gets a bullet that he can compare to the victim bullets and to the test bullets. And as soon as he compares it, he compares it not to another test bullet. So he must have known on sight it didn't match the test bullets. He must have known just by looking at it didn't. So he compares it instead to the Goldstein bullet. And then he shuts down for the night. It's like 4 o'clock at night. He goes away for five hours, comes back at 9 p.m., makes a photo micrograph, a bullet comparison photo of what he called the Kennedy bullet and the Goldstein bullet. And we later find out that they were two fake bullets. He I got makes it. a okay. fake picture. Got to jump in here, Lisa. Bullet. Got to jump in here. We're yes. going to take a timeout. We'll come back. We'll talk about the bullets. Okay. And uh, we'll okay. do that in mere moments. Lisa Peace, my guest on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio.
listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Lisa Peace, the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. We were talking about ballistics, and you mentioned the Goldstein bullet. We should mention, was that Ira Goldstein who uh, yes. was one of the uh, yes. injured? Uh, right. So yeah, a lot of people don't know that five other people took bullets in the pantry besides Robert Kennedy, who had two bullets removed from him. And then in addition, Kennedy was shot another two times. One bullet went through his chest and out. Another one went through his coat and didn't penetrate any skin. Um, There were three bullet holes in the ceiling that the police would allow, even though Wolfer had said, it's unbelievable how many holes there are in the ceiling. Three doesn't sound unbelievable. So I suspect there were many more. And, uh, And then there were four bullet holes in the pantry door frames. And there are pictures and photos of these. And in my book, I found video of... But not just the door frames, but the piece of paneling that had been destroyed. And I was so excited when I found that. I literally called Jim D. Eugenio. I said, you've got to drive up here right now. I'm so afraid this will disappear. Because at that point, as far as I knew, I was the only one who had ever seen it. And I'm like, I, you know, you got to come right now. And so he's like, okay, Lisa. <laughs> he drove an hour. And then he got it, and he knew right away how important that video was. So I paid $750 for the rights to air six seconds of video on the Internet in perpetuity. And in my book, I provide the link to that video. So uh, I encourage people to look for that. I've tweeted it out, and it's been posted, so people should be able to find it. But uh, uh, in the video, it shows a hand. There's no sound, but it shows a hand points at the two holes in the southwest part of the door frame, which are, uh, you know, what do I say, almost horizontal, not quite. And then the, the hand pulls a piece of wood, which is the paneling from the front of the door frame, and, and you can see the same two holes that are in the post you see are in that piece of paneling. So then you understand that the holes in the wall that you see in those pictures could not possibly have been made by pantry carts because they're tiny. They're like pencil size, smaller than pencil size holes. And nor were they made by pencils because that was another explanation that had been floated. Old people just stuck pencils in the wall. Well, you can't stick a pencil through three quarters of an inch of pine wood. It won't go. It'll break. Right. Some, some researchers have said... Some researchers have identified 13 shots fired. How, how many do you yes, figure? Yes, and there are at least 13 holes. Uh, because, again, you've got the seven bullets in the pantry victims, three holes in the ceiling. The police decided one bullet went up and down and hit one of the people, but one bullet must have been lost. So that's your eight. And then you have the four holes in the pantry door frames. And then there's the bullet still in the wood in an AP photo in the backstage door where Kennedy exited. And it's, it's near the bottom of the door, but the, that room was kind of at an upward slant. So if somebody had been firing from about Sirhan's position, the bullet could easily have entered right there. So that's 13 right there. But in my book, I go further because there are reports of additional bullets. And in that video I was just describing, the hand lingers and points at what looks to be a bullet still in the wood of the paneling that didn't penetrate all the way back to the post. So you won't see it in any of the photos. It's only in that video. And I can only imagine the hand points there for a while because it was significant and not, you know, a blemish on the wood. So how do you get 13-plus shots from an eight-shot Iverson pistol? (laughs) 
Well, it's worse than that because my book, again, I argue strongly from the evidence Sirhan was firing blanks. And there's so many reasons that would be the case. If I were planning an assassination, I'm not going to take a kid under hypnosis who thinks he's firing at targets and give him real bullets because what if his first bullet kills my assassin before the assassin gets to kill Robert Kennedy? That would make no sense. Plus, if I'm the assassin and I understand the setup and the scenario, I go, what? He's going to be firing real bullets at me? Heck no, I'm not taking that job. (laughs) That makes no sense whatsoever. But if I know the kid's hypnotized, but he's firing blanks, don't worry about it. You can't possibly get hit. And in addition, then, there's somebody next to Surahan, which again is in my book, Three Credible Witnesses, put a shooter on the table next to Surahan, firing down into the crowd. And there are advantages to that because your peripheral vision at the top of your head is very shallow. You can only see a little bit above the top. If you move your own hands just straight up above your eyes, they disappear before they go too far. So you could have somebody literally hiding in plain sight. And the fact that only three people saw somebody shooting there out of like 75 is pretty good. And even they weren't sure what they saw. And, you know, it was a blur. And the guy who was on the table looked like Sirhan and had the same color blue on, although it appeared he had a suit on and not a little pullover uh, velour thing as Sirhan had. So there were, it's, like I said, if there's 13 shots and Sirhan's firing blanks, then there were two other shooters in the pantry. But then <laughs> there's even another gunman uh, that two very credible witnesses again saw that got right up to Kennedy's head. Because if Thane Caesar's the guard who was at Kennedy's elbow, and he was perfectly positioned to make those underarm shots without being seen or noticed. Eugene and Caesar, he he's the ace security guard, right? Eugene, Eugene right, Caesar, right? Ace and he's security also, guard. even if he's not shooting, he's perfectly positioned to hide a shooter with his big body because mm. he was a fairly big man. What he's not perfectly positioned to do is to make that headshot because his arm would be completely noticeable and exposed. Everybody could see him reaching up. It makes more sense that somebody else, you know, would sneak in and do that. And it appears there was a young busboy who looked again just like Sirhan. In fact, I had one of these witnesses argue with me, like, no, it was Sirhan. I know it was Sirhan. Like, but Sirhan wasn't wearing a white busboy outfit. He was captured on the scene. He didn't have time to change clothes. He was wearing a blue pullover velour shirt. He's like, no, he's going to white busboy. <laughs> and that just shows the power of the illusion. In fact, The CIA had a magician on staff, John Mulholland, who said it's so important in a magic act, you don't just fool the eye because the mind will eventually work the trick out. He said the trick is really to fool the mind. And that's kind of what happened in the pantry. By using Sirhan lookalikes for any shooter, anybody who saw him figured they had to have seen Sirhan because they were all told over and over by the press, by the media, by the police, there was only one shooter. So whoever they saw... If it even remotely resembled Sirhan, they were then certain they saw Sirhan. Right. Well, what about the, the, course, the young man that's cradling Sirhan. Robert Kennedy in that famous photo? He looks like Sirhan. Well, well Juan Romero, I, I don't think he looks like Sirhan, but uh, and Juan Romero was a wonderful man and certainly had nothing to do with the shooting. And I, I might have had the last interview with him because, sadly, he just died recently. Oh. And I had just been speaking to him on the phone, and a couple of weeks later I saw on his Facebook page that he had passed away. I was very sad by that. But he confirmed something I've always suspected. He, I asked, were there other busboys near you? Were there other kitchen workers? And he named somebody that's not in any of the LAPD records. And sadly, he couldn't think of the last name. He only remembered the first name. 
But it's it's clear that there were other witnesses who were there who were not uh, either not interviewed or their interviews have disappeared, because this is another pattern I found in my 25 years of research in this case, okay. that people who saw something important were quietly disappeared from the record, but there's often a trace. It's like it was mentioned in somebody else's interview. For There's a guy, Charles Winner, who must have had a really interesting interview because he shows up in Michael Wayne's file, and he shows up in another highly suspicious character named John Corey. He shows up in his file. But Winner's own interview appears to be missing. And again, I've confirmed some of these with the California State Archives and written them, and they're like, no, you know, no such interview. Uh, but clearly there was at some point. So people who saw strong evidence of conspiracy, wow, that stuff is just missing now forever from the record. And unless the LAPD kept double books, unless somebody comes forward, we'll never know, like, the rest of the story on some of those points. I've just got about a minute here. evidence still... Right. Okay. I've got about a minute here before we break at the top of the hour. Um, We'll have to circle back and and talk a little bit more about... Anyway, I'll just say... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. The Goldstein bullet. We, we, we need to circle back and talk about, about that. We will do that uh, after the break. Okay. Um, but also, okay. Um, how many witnesses saw this, this woman in the polka dot dress leaving the hotel with another man saying, we got him? There were two witnesses who heard that conversation, not just Sandy Serrano. And we can talk about that after the break. All right. Do we know... We just tease this part, and we'll talk about it later. Do we know who that woman in the polka dot dress was? I believe we don't. I believe that the identifications that have been made are faulty for reasons I'm happy to go into. <laughs> All right. And we will do that. All right. Lisa Peace, the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. My name is Richard Serrett, and we will be back with Hour 2 with Lisa right after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. From Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big how-do to each and every one of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio. 740 megahertz on the amplitude modulation band and 96.7 on the frequency modulation band here in Toronto. Hi to everyone listening in on one of our affiliate stations like our new one, KXLFM News 101 in Portland, Oregon. Hi to those of you who listen online at zoomerradio.ca or on the Zoomer Radio and the Conspiracy Show apps. If you have the Conspiracy Show app, it still works. It's just no longer available at Google Play or Apple at the moment. Hi to all of you who are listening in on the uh, the YouTube channel, Strange Planet. No live YouTube stream tonight, but the audio from this program will be uploaded to the channel in the next few days. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you 
for your fine company. Elisa Peace is here, the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, which asserts the idea that a government can never investigate itself in a crime of this magnitude. We're talking about the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Was the convicted Sirhan Sirhan a willing participant, or was he a mind-controlled assassin? And it's fallen to independent researchers like Elisa to lay out the evidence in a clear and concise manner allowing readers to form their theories about this event. And her book, uh, A Lie Too Big to Fail, the real history of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy is already being heralded as a magnum opus, perhaps the definitive work uh, on the assassination. Uh, I want to pick up on, uh, before the, uh, the, the break, we were talking about the ballistics and um, you mentioned the Goldstein bullet, and I and I, I want to just re- revisit that because I think we need to spend a little bit more time on that. Um, yeah, the, the Goldstein bullet are really important because yeah. the police clearly switched the bullets, meaning there was a reinvestigation in 1975 of just the ballistics because by 1975 there was so much evidence that a second gun had been fired that Paul Schrade sued the county. CBS joined the lawsuit, and Judge Wenke appointed a panel of you know, nine uh, experts to, or seven, oh my God, I'd have to go count now. <laughs> they point a panel of experts, ballistics experts, to look at the bullets and figure out what, it, you know, if they were fired from two guns or one gun. That was basically what they were asked to do. And so what they did is they, you know, looked at the bullets and they looked at this photo micrograph that Wolfer made at that weird, you know, after a five-hour gap in his record late at night when no one was in the lab, And they said, wow, he's trying to fool us. He tells us this is the Kennedy neck bullet and a test bullet from Sirhan's gun, but it's not. It's a picture of the Kennedy bullet and the Ira Goldstein bullet. And so they're like, wow, the police lied. They tried to flip one by. And what the panel found was, although they could not match any of the bullets provided that were were victim bullets, they couldn't match any of those to Sirhan's gun, but they could at least match three of them to each other. And therefore they said... We only have evidence that one gun was used. And then, of course, that became the only one gun was used, which isn't really what they said. It's like we can't prove a second gun was used because the three bullets we were able to compare all matched to each other. What the panel didn't do, though, they actually made an inventory of all the markings on all the bullets. What they never did, however, is go back to the LAPD's log to see if those were the same bullets because the Goldstein bullet should have had an X on it. And, in fact, it had no marking at all. So they put a six on the base where the X would have been if, if it was the real bullet. With the Kenny bullet, it's even more dramatic. The end of a bullet, the, a twenty-two bullet, is smaller than a pencil. So look at a pencil eraser and imagine something a little smaller. And then try and imagine four you know, characters on it, TN31. You can be pretty sure that TN was on top of the 31. Well, when the pan- that was what Thomas Noguchi put, the last two digits of the autopsy, and he verified that at the grand jury under oath. He said, yes, this is the bullet. These are the marks I put on, TN31. So we know those were the original marking on that bullet. Well, when the panel gets it in 75, the markings are instead now DWTN. And again, it can't be DWT and 31 because Thomas Noguchi didn't leave room for DS. Right. <laughs> no way. Like I said, it's so tiny, you can only get four characters on it. Well, so if you can't match, the if they can't match switched. any of the bullets to Sirhan's gun, Sirhan's gun. I mean, if right. you can't match funny, the bullets. But that makes sense. Uh, if, if he was firing blanks, then of course you can't match any of the bullets because he didn't fire any bullets. No, but my point is if, you can, if they can't match... How can they convict? 
Well, again, read my book because the trial was all full of those kinds of shenanigans. And at that point in time, no one knew what the police were doing. And again, his lawyers assumed he was guilty. They didn't do any kind of investigation. You should hear Munir go off on that sometime about how shoddily the lawyers, they just, they were so rude to the family. They were so mean to them and just assumed he was guilty and didn't lift a finger to help. And they were all about the money, if they could get any money from the book deal, because Robert Blair Kaiser had promised the defense team some of the money from his book deal if they let him be part of the defense team. And then years later, Robert Blair Kaiser is working in the DA's office and making fun of the buffs. You know, it's like, so who are these people? It's well, like, that's know, the question. Were... Who is who was Grant Cooper, for example? Because I, I'm right. not sure. Well, and Grant Cooper at the time of the trial had, you know, been a famous attorney here for decades in Los Angeles. And ironically, had even written an article about getting somebody off because, you know, he had confessed to a crime he hadn't committed. And that's what people say, too. It's like, well, Sirhan confessed, so obviously he did it. Well, he confessed because he was told to confess, but also he confessed in court as a joke to, because he felt the mo- the trial was a mockery, and he's like, yeah, I committed, you know, I killed Kennedy with 20 years malice of forethought. Well, he's only 24, so he's like saying, stop bringing up my childhood and the trauma from my childhood. You know, what I did as a four-year-old didn't affect me in the pantry. That's what he was saying, but it was misrepresented as, oh, during confess, everybody runs to the phones and, and calls, and it, it wasn't that at all. It was a, a completely exasperated outburst, and I, I explained that in the book, uh, but... Uh, Grant Cooper was himself uh, under threat of indictment yes. because in a previous case, the Friars Club card cheating schedule that involved Johnny Roselli, the man the CIA had tipped to kill Castro uh, through Robert Mayhew, who was then running the Howard Hughes empire. And uh, Robert Mayhew makes a big appearance in my book for reasons I'll let the readers figure out. Okay, But... Mayhew connects to literally everybody in the case. Mayhew was friends with the sheriff, Sheriff Pitches. In fact, it was the sheriff's men who were in the pantry before the LAPD got there. And it's very, and it was the sheriff's men who took bullets out of the wall and then evidently disappeared them because they, we never found them again. Uh, and, and Mayhew uh, and Roselli may have worked together to set up Cooper, and that's actually something I didn't even have time to go into in my book because the book was already so long, but I actually kind of tracked that down. It looks like Cooper was set up, and then I was trying to find out, was he set up before the trial, or, I mean, before they knew he was going to be Sirhan's lawyer or after, and I believe I came, I believe it was after, but again, it was so getting so convoluted, I cut it back from the right. book. But the point here but is anyway, that Cooper... Cooper was under threat of this, of being jailed. He could have been jailed right. for being in possession of a stolen grand jury transcript, but after the trial is over and Sirhan is convicted, he gets off with the least possible fine. And as I note at the end of my trial chapter, everybody involved in the cover-up got promoted. Literally, everybody got a better position, more money, a private security firm. Everybody got their reward. Even the judge had something at stake. And again, I'll leave people to read the book to figure out what they had possibly hanging over the judge's head. Because he did some crazy things during the trial that I point out. He was not a fair and impartial judge at all. It was really shocking. When I read the trial transcript, and it took me took me like three months to read it because it was a three-month trial, and I had to read, you know, and they talk all day. <laughs> so it took a long time to get through this thing. And I was so angry at the end, and I thought there, you know, there was a book about the trial that I felt after reading the transcript didn't go nearly far enough. So I really tried to hit home how bad the trial was in my book. 
Uh, we're opening up the uh, the phone lines for questions and comments uh, for Lisa Peace as we discuss the RFK assassination. And uh, the numbers are 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area. 416-360-0740. And toll free from out of town and just about anywhere. one 866 740 Four seven forty again one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Who else was arrested immediately? I mean, someone saw somebody coming going out in handcuffs besides Sir Hans. Yeah, that Sirhan. was Michael Wayne was was apprehended immediately. There was another guy apparently named Jesse Greer who appears to have been arrested and then quietly let go. There was yet another man. Uh, let's see if I get the name right. Frazier was the last name. I want to say Terry Lee Frazier, but for some reason that's sounding wrong to me right now. And again, <laughs> you know, look in my book for the actual name. But him, in his case, I really don't think he was involved. I think Wayne was very much involved. And Wayne was lying to people all over the hotel and saying things that were provably not true, claiming to know people he really didn't know. And again, people mistook him for Sirhan. In fact, at the grand jury, one of the people who testified to the grand jury was Harold Burba of the photographer for the fire department, and he described this man walking with rolled-up posters in the pantry before Kennedy went to speak and how suspicious he looked and how he was casing the joint and turning his head left and right and looking around, and, and he thought he was terribly suspicious, and he just assumed that was Sirhan. And it wasn't until a month after the grand jury that the police went back to him. They said, well, we're not sure that was Sirhan. It's like, look at this guy. And they showed him a picture of Michael Wayne. He goes, yeah, that's the guy. And they go, well, that's not Sirhan. <laughs> so, I mean, you can argue Sirhan was even convicted in part based on a misidentification. He wasn't even that suspicious character. It's really, really kind of horrific to think that Sirhan... Now, I want to talk really briefly, because I know we're going to get calls here any minute, but super important for people to understand you cannot be made to do something against your will under hypnosis, but you can be tricked under hypnosis into believing a different reality. And I think it's very clear that that's what happened in the pantry. And that's why I argue in my book, I believe Sirhan to be completely innocent. He had no idea he was participating in a conspiracy to assassinate Robert Kennedy. He was used by others who knew he didn't know, but they put him in the right position. They triggered him at the right moment. He thought he was back at the firing range at the right moment started firing a gun and, again, firing blanks. And it's funny because in his own hypnosis, he's like, I saw a flame coming out of the gun. He thought, that can't be my gun because my gun has bullets in it, except it didn't. <laughs> you know, Like I said, because otherwise, that's the other thing. The people who were right in front of him, if he had been firing bullets, Kennedy would have been shot in the front of the chest. Exactly. I mean, it's very clear. If he had fired a bullet, he pointed right in that direction and fired. Kennedy would have been hit from the front if he had been firing real bullets. Uh, let's go to the phones, and we begin with Robert in New Hampshire. Robert, good evening, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, hi, good evening. Um, I listen to Zoom Radio uh, on occasion, and it's such a, such, such a great variance of programming. I just want to compliment you on that. Thank you. Now, this, uh, my call is in reference... Robert, are you there? No. Robert? Now, her name was Kathy Fulmer, F-U-L-L-M-E-R. Ah, yes. And the exact quote that was attributed to her was, uh, she was um, just running out in the area, let's say, and she said, we shot him. And a person uh, nearby said, who, who did you shoot? So she said, 
President Kennedy, I mean Senator Kennedy. That was the exact quote. Now, she was found, Kathy Fulmer, the girl in the polka dot dress, she was found dead um, some years later. Um, and it was widely published, actually. It was in the New York Post. I read that paper every day in, in quite a few papers, actually. And it said, girl in um, polka, said polka dot dress girl found dead. I'm sure there's plenty of ways of checking on that. That was in the New York Post. Okay, let me address that. Okay, all right, um, Robert, great call. Let uh, let, uh, Lisa address that. Yeah, how would they know her name? So Kathy Fulmer was interviewed by the LAPD, but she was not wearing a polka dot dress. She was wearing a polka dot scarf, and she did not run out shouting that, although there were people near her who thought she said, we shot Kennedy. Now, in my book, I argue that the polka dot pattern itself was assigned to the other conspirators. In fact, we were talking about that coffee urn, and I never got to circle back to that. The coffee urn was right behind the stage. And when the girl and Sirhan went into that anteroom area, that's where the coffee urn was. It was literally right behind the stage where Kennedy was speaking. And guess who was standing there? A big, tall man with a polka dot tie. It's like, and that's, he was the one who directed them to the pantry. So he had figured out where Kennedy was going, and he sent them that way. You know, he could have sent them downstairs, but he sent them upstairs to the right. Uh, but Kathy Fulmer's death was suspicious, and I, for years I really didn't think she was involved because it was a polka dot star, scarf, and I thought it was coincidence. But then, like I said, the more I, I realized everybody who seemed involved, not everybody, but several of the people who seemed involved did seem to be wearing a polka dot pattern somewhere and in the police photos, and I've gone through hundreds of them, I've never found anybody in polka dots. And I thought, well, that's odd because so many people saw the girl in the polka dot dress. How could she not be in any of the photos? And it's almost as if, you know, somebody went through the police photos and and knew that that was the clue and took out anybody who had a polka dot dress and, you know, threw it away, unless it was obviously the wrong type of dress, like a black dress with right. white polka dots. Robert, thank you for the call. Great dress. call. Was it, Are the polka dots maybe a, some sort of a trigger? No, I, I thought that for a while, too, but I really don't believe that was the case. That's what a, a, a Darren Brown did in his show. He used it as, like, step one of a two-step locking mechanism to get somebody into the hypnotic state that when they saw that pattern, it would trigger the first level, and then when they heard keywords, it would trigger the second level. I don't believe that to be the case, but it's that would be a hard thing to disprove. But I do think it helped the conspirators find each other, because polka dots have never really been formal. It's more of an informal, fun, funky pattern. And as I understand it, political events today are very casual. People show up in jeans and T-shirts. But back in that time, it was the Kennedy Victory Party, and everybody was dressed to the nines. This is what I heard from one of the people who was there. She's like, you don't understand. These people really stuck out. Sharon was in jeans. You just didn't wear that to those kind of political events. And the girl's dress was kind of, you know, like a kitchen dress. It wasn't like a really pretty, fancy dress. All right, let's go so to the phones. Uh, let's go back to the phones. Mike is in Mississauga this evening, this morning. Mike, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Good show as usual, Richard. Thank you. I have two questions for you. Um, wasn't there any, like, film footage of all this happening? And wouldn't uh, the film footage, you know, couldn't there be people identified? And my second question is, how was Sir Hansaran chosen to be this patsy? How did they find him? How, why was he chosen? Great question, right. Mike. Thank you. Two good questions and two long answers that I'll try and keep short. Um, let me do the second question first because I've already forgot the first one. But Sir Hansaran okay, has yeah. been chosen in part 
I, he might have been identified because he worked at the racetrack where uh, Desi Arnaz owned some horses. Desi Arnaz was an Annie Castro Cuban who even had ties to the CIA. There were mob people working there. There was kind of a criminal element in that circle that any one of them could have tagged Sirhan. There was also a naval surface weapons research facility there, and I talk about the Navy's own mind control experiments because they had some pretty extensive stuff going on. And it's possible that when he got injured and he went to the hospital, one of the doctors might have been a Navy doctor goes, hmm, <laughs> good subject for us. Also, back in Pasadena when he was in school, he was studying, here he is, a guy who speaks Arabic and English. He's studying Chinese, Russian, and German. Now, if you wanted somebody who spoke all the major spy languages of the world, that would pretty much cover it. And he wanted to be an international diplomat. So, again, he might have been tagged even before the horse racing stuff. But it does seem like after the injury, his family noted, first of all, he was missing for two weeks, that no one could account for where he went. And then when he came back, he seemed, for the first time in his life, kind of surly because he had never been like that, and he didn't understand what had happened. So that's that. Now, the first question was, do you where, remember? Why, why, was there any film? Uh, was anyone filming anything? Right. There was lots of audio so tape. <laughs> Right. There's audio tape, but the, the the reason they wanted to stage the assassination right after he spoke is that is the moment when all the cameras go off, because the cameras are on Kennedy every minute until the acceptance speech. After the acceptance speech, all the cameras went off, and although they were following him because he was headed towards the media room where he's going to answer the printed press, um, but the cameras were off. They were done for the night, and they did turn back on after they realized shooting had started, but by then the shots had been fired. So there isn't footage of the actual shooting. There's footage of the immediate aftermath. And in my book, I also talk about it wasn't just two people firing eight bullets and seven bullets each or something. It was like, you know, three, four, five people shooting two bullets each and running immediately from the room. And that accounts for why it sounded like an explosion or firecrackers, and no one could be sure how many shots were fired because so many were fired at once. And then people ran out before anybody even could process that a shooting was in place. And so they were long gone by the time the cameramen came to their senses, you know, got out of that immediate moment of shock and turned on the cameras. By then they were all gone. You know what what, uh, stands out to me is it's, I mean, this was not... If this was a, you know, a, a highly planned military operation, there are just so many, no pun intended, so many holes in this thing that a, you know, a, a good lawyer at the time mm-hmm. should have been able to get Sirhan off. Oh, yeah. If, if a lawyer had read, and, and now Robert, Brick, I can't even say his name, Robert Blair Kaiser said he wrote a letter to Cooper about the distance issue, which I think is kind of funny because... Robert Blair Kaiser also has always held that Sirhan fired all the shots. It's like, well, if you're aware of the distance issue, then you know Sirhan couldn't have fired the Exactly. Shots. i got to take a time you out, Lisa. You can't have it both ways. You I'll... can't, if you're intellectually honest, you can't have it both ways. Exactly. All right, we'll take a time out, come back. We'll get to some more calls as well. 416-360-0740 in the GTA. Toll free from out of town. 1-866-740-4740. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, welcome back. Uh, Lisa Peace is with us, extraordinary uh, author, uh, researcher, and her uh, book, A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, uh, being hailed as a magnum opus. And uh, Lisa, a colleague of James Eugenio, who has been on this program many, many times, a good friend of the program. Um, Repeat. What is the uh, the the announcement that that was made earlier uh, uh, regarding the Truth and Re- Reconciliation uh, Committee? Just give us that once again for those joining yes. us late. So last night, uh, the Ken- members of the Kennedy family and the King family, in a historic first, called for a reopening of the investigations of the assassinations of the '60s, specifically the President Kennedy, uh, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Robert Kennedy. And it's the first time either of the, the families have called for investigating anything but their own family's investigation, if you will. And uh, frankly, it's, it's it's completely historic. I've had people come up to me and said, but if these were conspiracies, surely members of the family would have spoken out. I'm like, they have. No one is hearing them. And, uh, you know, so that's the problem. So now they're calling for a Truth and Reconciliation Committee, a public inquiry where we can subpoena the the last living witnesses and get some additional data. Uh, We're pressing for Congress to ask the, the... for the oversight of the JFK Act, because the agencies that were supposed to release all their records have not, and there's been no punishment for not meeting their deadlines. And, you know, a law, a democracy is only as good as its laws. So it's really important that we enforce the laws we have, or what's the point? Uh, So a lot of stuff is in this. It's actually going to be a year-long campaign. So this is the opening salvo. There'll be a petition site where people can sign and say, I support this. Uh, we're going to be lobby- lobbying Congress all year on this point to reopen these cases. And again, we want to take witness testimony before people die. There are people who still have information that's never really been officially taken for the record. So this is an important uh, an important moment in our history, and we could save history or lose history, and I hope we can save it. Uh, let's say hi to William in Toronto. William, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I just want to say... Uh, Bobby Kennedy, he announced that he was going to challenge uh, Lyndon Johnson for the Democratic nomination for the presidency in 68 before about 10 days or two weeks prior to Johnson bowing out of the race. You remember he made that famous right. uh, speech. And he I said, will not, not seek, speak. nor will I right. accept the nomination. Yes. Uh-huh. Now, what I'm thinking, and I've always believed this, I'm not saying Johnson was behind uh, RFK's assassination, but he was a astute enough politician to realize that if this pit bull kid runs for president, there will be people who, want, who, who, who won't want him to be president under any circumstances. And that's what prompted him to bow out, because his, I mean, if he hadn't bowed out and, and things had been, you know, Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated in, in June and Johnson was still in the race, people would say Johnson became president only because of the death of uh, uh, RFK. Right. And he remains president <laughs> only because of the death of RFK. Interesting point. Great, 
Great yeah, thought. What I, are your thoughts, Lisa? I, I've heard that sentiment expressed, and I have a slightly different take on it. I think he knew he couldn't win. I think he saw that his support for the Vietnam War was his, his albatross around his neck, and he couldn't not support the war because he figured he'd end up just like JFK, uh, but he figured his support of the war would be enough to split the party and he knew it was important to defeat Nixon. And once he saw that he probably could not win or could not win with the majority, he bowed out after Bobby got in because I think he knew, too, that Bobby would win. Well, let's not forget and, Eugene McCarthy. Wasn't it McCarthy that beat Johnson in the New Hampshire primary? Yes, and, and McCarthy also beat Bobby Kennedy in Oregon. And yes. they went toe-to-toe over their dogs at the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah people forget but, Kennedy was no shoe-in for the nomination. Right, but he kind of was because the delegates, uh, the big state delegates were going for Kennedy. You know, it, it was like Bernie versus Hillary. Sadly, you know, she, well, sadly in my opinion because I was a Bernie supporter. <laughs> but, you know, she got more delegates. So mm. it didn't matter if Bernie had more popular support or more energy or whatever. She got the delegates in the same way the Kennedys were going to get the delegates. And it didn't matter. And in those days, the primaries were even more of a a show trial than they are now. I mean, now they actually count for a little bit more, but in those days, really, the primaries didn't matter. It was about what happened at the convention and the the horse trading, and there were still a lot of Kennedy loyalists at that point. Uh, Let's say hello to Gary in Toledo, Ohio. Gary, good evening, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, hi, good evening. Hey, just a quick question about the role of Roosevelt Greer in the in the assassination, I remember vividly that he was interviewed and uh, uh, had put his thumb in the trigger of the gun to jam it, and uh, being told to break the person's thumb and other things relative to that. It, it provided such um, such credibility to to the one one gun killer. Uh, one-person killer uh, because of his popularity as a celebrity. Was he part of the plot? Oh, no. And the same with Rafer. Both of them, again, and Rafer made it more clear in his testimony. He said, I saw this guy firing a gun, so I didn't look around to see if anybody else was firing. I wanted to focus on the gun I saw. And uh, the same with Rosie. I mean, both of them thought this was the only shooter because, again, in, in the moment, when you see one person firing a gun, you don't look around to see if there are others. You just don't. You want to make sure you're safe and then that the people you love are safe. And for them, that was Robert Kennedy. And so they grabbed the guy and they forced his arm away from the crowd. And that's the other thing, where they were pointing Sirhan's arm. There should have been holes in the wall, like in the the back, the what would that be, the northwest corner, because that's where they shoved his arm. And there are no holes there either. So they were all fooled. They were all fooled. They really didn't know what they were seeing because it was carefully planned, well-staged magic act. All right. Uh, thank you, Gary, in Toledo for that. Um, I mentioned, you know, rarely a trial, change the parade route. The other one is um, uh, that often occurs is the gunman is taken out. Oswald, of course, which leads me to, you know, the confusion as to why Sirhan Sirhan, the patsy, was allowed to live. Why is he well, still languishing in prison? Right. Uh, first of all, there were people who tried to kill him in the pantry. Unfortunately, because Oswald had been killed, a lot of people were saying, we don't want another Oswald. Jess Unruh actually 
jumped in the police car when Sirhan was taken away because he wanted to make sure the police didn't kill him on the way to custody. You know, everybody was very protective. And then, it, you know, it's like the, the more he was in custody, the harder it was to kill him because that looked just like Oswald. Then if he were killed in police custody, it would have looked so suspicious. So there were people who looked like they were trying to kill him in the pantry, that, and there were others that were protecting him because that had happened to Oswald. Ah, interesting. So if there had been no Oswald, there probably would have been a dead surgeon. Uh Thomas Noguchi uh, performed the autopsy, correct? Yes. And, and he, his findings were that, that Kennedy was shot from behind. Was he right. not chased out of town after that because he stood by that? You could you can definitely make that argument. Yeah, there was all this kind of trumped up charges about him, and and the timing was such that it came, of course, right at the time of the trial. And so, you know, if he had made, and the thing is, I'm not aware that he made any statements that Wolfer didn't make. Meaning, like I said, Wolfer at the trial actually put the gun closer than Noguchi did, <laughs> but it had the how do I want to say. He had told the grand jury that the gun was about an inch away, and he had been pulled aside by John Minor, who was one of the um, people working for the county, who said, oh, my God, you've got to put the, you know, the gun couldn't have been that close. It had to be further away. He's like, I know what the evidence says. You know, it was an inch. It was not, you know, like three feet. And, you know, Noguchi hung tough on that. And in his book, Coroner, Noguchi said, thus I have never said that Sirhan Sirhan killed Robert Kennedy. And he must have made some comment like that to coworkers or colleagues. There are pictures of him in the pantry pointing at the bullet holes. He had to know those were bullet holes. You know, he's a coroner. He's been to other crime scenes. You know, when you've been to enough crime scenes, you kind of know what a bullet hole looks like. And so I think they were terrified that he might kind of expose the conspiracy because he did seem to be a decent and honorable man. And so, yeah, he was discredited in the media, and he lost his job right around the time of the trial. And within a year, it's like all of that was proven to be fake and bogus, and he was back in his job. But the damage had been done at exactly the moment the damage needed to be done. Mm, Funny thing, that. Uh, Thomas Noguchi is still with us, right? I mean, he's in his 90s? Yes, he is. He testified. He didn't testify. He spoke via camera uh, at a conference at the WEX Center last year for the 50th anniversary this right. year, last year. Right. <laughs> what year are we in? Yes, last year. <laughs> 2019, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, how about Cyril Wecht? Has he weighed in on this? Oh, Cyril has always uh, agreed it was a conspiracy. Cyril, you know, was a friend of Thomas Noguchi, and yeah, Cyril has been just fantastic on this case. He's been a staunch supporter of the fact that Sirhan could, you know, was not in the right position to have made those shots. And uh, Sirhan, he's reading your book, obviously. So, I mean, he is he. What is his state of mind? I mean, he must. Is he angry? Is he resigned? He's very the, frustrated. Yeah. He's very frustrated for for the first few years. You know, after this all happened, he assumed he had killed Kennedy because everybody told him he had, and he had no memory of what had happened. So he tried to, you know, for the trial, he tried to invent a motive for himself. Like, why would I have done that? And kind of latched on to the Palestinian cause because he's like, if I'm going to die anyway. He he literally said at one point, I'd rather die and say I did it for my country. And that was kind of his attitude, like I must have had a motive. 
But over the years, he's learned the evidence like the rest of us. He's right. read the books on the case. You know, he. I don't know if he has internet access or if he's been looking at the primary records like I have. I just don't know. Okay, I've got to take but, a time out, uh, Lisa. But we'll, he's we'll come, come to understand that he was being set up in a patsy. Okay, I've got to take I a time out say, quickly here. We'll, we'll come back. Lisa Peace, a lie too big to fail, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. And uh, once again, let me give you the phone numbers if you'd like to get in on the discussion with Lisa Peace as we continue to delve into uh, and peel back the layers of this onion. That is the RFK assassination, uh, June 1968, coming up on the 51st anniversary. And um, big news, um, members of the, the, uh, the King family, the Kennedy family, um, are calling for a truth and reconciliation committee. We could be, hopefully, looking at a congressional uh, hearing and a congressional investigation into, uh, well, the, the four uh, political assassinations of the 1960s. Malcolm X, JFK, uh, um, MLK, and RFK. And tonight we are focusing on the uh, the RFK assassination. Um, let me just ask you before we get back to the phones, and that is about the... Uh, your your thoughts on this Truth and Reconciliation Committee and the, and the thoughts of the members of the King and Kennedy family. Are they confident that you could get a new congressional investigation into this? Well, one can always hope, and it is not an election year, and that's pretty much the only time you can get anything done is in the off years. So if there was a year where it could happen, now would be the time to get that ball rolling. Um, the nice thing about the call is that it doesn't rely on Congress. Like you said, if we start with a public inquiry, we might do a better job finding the truth ourselves. You know, as I say in my book, I don't believe the government is ever capable of truly investigating itself. That said, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, although their conclusions were weak, the data was deep and rich, and people are still mining it and finding important data. And that's really what congressional investigations can do. If you ignore the report and you go right to the data, it's still a worthwhile exercise. I would just not count the report as being the truth on anything of significance. Usually the report is the cover story. Um, and in, by the way, yeah. one of the signers of that is Robert Blakey, who headed the House Select Committee on Assassinations Investigation. And even he is saying we should have done better. The CIA lied to us. We need a new investigation. That's significant. What about a... Um a, a civil trial, because William Francis Pepper conducted a, a civil trial on behalf of the King family, and, um, I mean, it wasn't covered the way it should have been, uh, but that right. would generate a lot of, of press attention on the evidence. What about launching well, a, a civil trial? And it's it's something to consider in the sense that I, I, I think Robert F. Kennedy Jr. may have legal standing to sue the city over the Sirhan trial. You know, especially the falsification of evidence, there might be a legal opening there. I haven't discussed that in particular with him, but 
it does seem like that would be warranted, <laughs> given what has happened to the evidence in that case. And again, we have a nice long paper trail that proves the, that evidence was deliberately altered. And somebody said, well, doesn't that mean the police were in on it? Were the police in on it? I'm like, no, the police weren't in on it. But they have only Sirhan and an obvious conspiracy. What are they going to do? Go to the public and say, well, we caught one of them. Sorry, we didn't catch any of the others. And by the way, this guy wasn't the real shooter. They're not going to do that. They're going to say, hey, go back to sleep. We've got it all covered. This is the guy. This is the only guy. Go back to sleep, America. All is well. That's how the world works. No one wants to tell the public a bad story. The media doesn't want to tell that story. It doesn't sell. The police don't want to tell that story because it doesn't sell. They could lose their jobs if they're not, you know, catching the right people. No one wants to admit that they utterly failed and screwed up, so they make up these cover stories. And that's literally why I called the book A Lie Too Big to Fail, because once you start with that one lie, that Sirhan alone killed Kennedy, then you have to keep lying and lying and lying and lying, and then you tell really egregious, obvious lies, obvious to anybody who's paying attention, uh, you know, to cover up that initial lie. It became a lie too big to fail. Uh, Bruce is in Etobicoke. Bruce, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. You're on the line with Lisa Peace. Yeah, I just had a question concerning his security detail. I mean, Robert Kennedy was a rich guy, and knowing what happened to his brother, you'd think that he would have had this extensive uh, security detail. And um, if he did, was there, is there a possibility that, that somebody in his security detail was, uh, was compliant with this? He didn't have a large security detail. He was fatalistic about that. He kind of told people, look, if somebody's going to get me, there's going to get me. There's nothing we can do. He didn't trust the security people to protect him in any case, which was a good call because it was very likely a security guard who made some of the shots that, you know, hit him. Uh, By the way, I don't believe saying Eugene Caesar actually killed Bobby and people can read about who I think did and why in the book. But the... The security issue, it bothered Bobby because he, he, just, he just knew. He's like, if they're going to get me, they're going to get me, and no amount of security is going to make a difference. And maybe he was right, maybe he was wrong. Maybe if he'd had a private security force, it, they could have protected him. We'll never know. Thanks for the call, Bruce. Uh, what about J. Edgar Hoover's role in this and, 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 the FBI and, and, and his role in ordering the destruction mm. of evidence? Well, uh, Hoover didn't order the destruction of any evidence, just to be clear. That was the LAPD. The LAPD ordered the destruction of the evidence they had collected. After the trial was over, they burned the door frames. They burned 2,400 photographs in a hospital incinerator. That was the LAPD's call. Hoover was very curious about this, and uh, how do I want to say it? I, I talk in my book about how the CIA was blackmailing Hoover at the time of the investigation, and Hoover had talked to one of the people who who knew one of the people involved, and Hoover had said, yes, I know it was that guy's operation, but I'm powerless against the CIA. And, you know, Hoover did name a name, and again, people can read the book, I don't want to give it all away, it's like there's got to be something to go read there. Exactly. Uh, but, but Hoover was in a bind, and it's, it's funny, because in 1977, the county, I mean, the city, wrote the FBI because... The FBI had photographed the pantry after the, the wood paneling of the door frames was pulled off and the posts of the doors were exposed with the bullet holes in them. And the FBI had photographed them and labeled them bullet holes. 
not possible or probable, just flat out bullet holes. Well, this really concerned the city. And they wrote in 1977, this is the tail end of all the investigations. Thomas Kranz was finishing up his, his special counsel you know, report to try and tie up all the loose ends of conspiracy. And this was one they couldn't tie up. So they wrote the FBI and they said, you know, you called these bullet holes. And if you had labeled them possible or probable bullet holes, we could all kind of go back to bed. But you didn't. And so if there if those were bullet holes, we should be looking for another shooter. Exactly. Lisa, i got to take wrong. another time out. Okay, we'll take a quick time out, come back, finish up with Lisa Peace, A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, last call to the phones for Lisa Peace, the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail. The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740, that's in the greater Toronto area, the GTA, and toll-free from just about anywhere, one 740 Again, one 740 I know we're focusing on Robert F. Kennedy, but um, you, you, this, with this piece or this Truth and Reconciliation Committee, what about the Little family uh, in terms of Malcolm X? Have they signed on? What about the Little family? Well, that Malcolm X is—I guess that's his his his, oh, uh, oh, his real name. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yes, uh, one of is this a granddaughter? I think one of the granddaughters of Malcolm X has signed. You know her name right now. But yes, one of those family members as well. And of course, Munir Sirhan was willing to sign on as well because you know, he was a family member of the state too. In fact, I dedicated my book to both. Whoops. We're sorry. Because of technical difficulties, we are unable to... Okay, we've lost uh, Lisa. Can you get her back uh, quickly, uh, Faz? And we will uh, try to finish up. Lisa, peace has just dropped off the line. Well, And then we lost our caller. All right. Uh, let me give you the numbers again. 416-360-0740. And toll-free from out of town, one 4740 And we just have about four or five minutes left here, but we are trying to get Lisa, Lisa Peace. What's happening, Faz? Is she's not answering? Okay. Well, she's dropped off the line. Keep trying, please. Yeah. If you can. Uh, well, this has been fascinating. And um, for me, uh, the, the, the takeaway is the blanks. No bullets in that Ivor Johnson 8 shooter that Sirhan Sirhan was clutching in the pantry uh, at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. I had not heard sort of this kind of definitive or definite evidence that he was firing blanks. It's fascinating. I think we have Lisa Peace back. Lisa, yes, are I don't you there? know what happened there. Well, you're, you're, you're just cutting a little too close to the bone for somebody, somebody perhaps. Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So uh, I was asking about the little family, Malcolm X's family. You said one of the granddaughters has signed on. Uh, and then you, you were mentioning about the, the dedication of the, to, of the book, and that's when your line started to go a little wonky. Oh, yeah, sorry. I had dedicated my book to both Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Munir Sirhan, the two family members who really, you know, have done the most to try and find the truth out about those events. Because I, I wanted to bring you near in, too, because it isn't just the killed that matter. I honestly believe Sirhan was innocent again after 20... I didn't start there, by the way. That's not where I started when I started researching. I assumed he was guilty. I just didn't know how guilty or to what extent. But it wasn't until, you know, about 10, 15 years into the research, I'm like, I'm not sure this guy even knew what he was doing. I'm not sure he really he was anything more than a pawn. And... Now I'm 100% convinced of that, and readers will make up their own mind based on the evidence, you know, presented on that point. But uh, but I want you to think of him as another victim of the assassinations of the 60s. Here's a guy who's 24 years old at the time. He's about to turn 75. He's been in jail two-thirds of his life for a crime he didn't commit and can't remember. Isn't that horrible? It's beyond horrible. It's just, it's, it's an it's absolutely horrible. unconscionable. Uh, is there anyone left alive, do you suspect, that still needs him to be in prison? Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to name a name on the air. No. I do. Uh, oh, no. But, uh, I, I, again, sadly, I, I'm going to keep referring people to the book, you know, when it comes to the, the ultimate sponsors and conclusions. Um, not everybody is still alive. I, I think the top guy is dead. Uh, but I do think there are others who have knowledge who are still around. And that's why that's why I like the model of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I'm not seeking to put somebody in jail. I really just want to know what happened at this point. It's like they got away with it for this long. You know, it's, I don't like to think that there is no justice, but I am much more interested in the truth than I am in justice, if that makes sense. To me, truth is the ultimate justice. So if I had to choose, it's like... If, if I had to give somebody a pardon or immunity, if it were me, I would give it because I really want to know what happened. And is, I, I mean, again, this is kind of a rhetorical question, but is there a common thread that runs through all of these assassinations? Are we talking about the same people? <laughs> well, let's see. Oswald had no nitrate on his cheek, but when the FBI fired his rifle, they couldn't not get nitrate on their cheek. I think Oswald didn't kill JFK, uh, James Earl Ray, you know, that the uh, package of incriminating evidence was placed 10 minutes before the the shooting. <laughs> the rifle that incriminated James Earl Ray was placed on the sidewalk 10 minutes before the shooting. James Earl Ray didn't kill Martin Luther King. Their hand didn't kill RFK. There is a pattern. And uh, the, the, these people are chosen. They're set up as patsies. The cover story is put together, kind of prepackaged and ready to go. You know, in Sirhan's case, it was the Palestinian immigrant, you know, upset over the sale of bombers to Israel. You know, they give them these ready-made narratives that also just happen to benefit, for example, the CIA and their dealings in the world at those moments in time. Uh, you know, Kennedy, you know, was shot by, you know, one of Castro's stooges was the original story. And then they quickly changed that to the USSR. And then they quickly changed that to, oh, Lotus Assassin, because either one of those doors was, was too close to the fact that it was an actual conspiracy. So they learned quickly. Uh, in both the, the MLK case and the RFK case, in both of those cases, uh, an author came forward, offered his services to the defense team in exchange for a lucrative book contract. Uh, you know, there are other parallels that run through these cases. 
And in all of them, in all of them, there are CIA media assets. And this is something that really people need to understand. The reason we don't get the truth about these cases is that there are CIA people in the media shaping the narrative and others in the media don't want to go up against the leaders because once, just like when Inspector Powers said, look, it was one man and that's what we're doing and the LAPD fell in line, it's the same way in the media. Once the New York Times or the Washington Post speaks, often the other newspapers fall in line. They, they're afraid to go against each other. That makes it look like no one knows what they're talking about. So, like, that's the story. We're going to all follow the same line. There's safety in numbers, as they say. There aren't a lot of brave, independent reporting outlets now, and there, were, there weren't a lot then, but it does seem like there were many more in the past. Now, with the media consolidation, there's like six companies that own almost everything you see and hear in the media. Fortunately, now we have blogs, we have Twitter, we have you know, Internet sources, and so the truth is, is seeping out through all these other sources. But I'm not holding my breath that I'm going to see a major story on this on ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, Fox, MSNBC. They serve a different agenda. Well, I mean, what sort of may, mainstream media coverage are you getting with your book? Uh, uh, how do I want to answer that? Because there is actually one mainstream outlet that's about to do a big story on it. So, uh, But aside from that, one, zero. <laughs> Absolutely zero coverage. Where is, one has to ask, where is the, the intellectual curiosity? Yes. Well, and partly, again, it is a factor of time. Even good reporters, they have families. They have a day job. You know, they don't have time to look into these. They don't have, and they have intellectual curiosity on a number of topics. Um, you know, just not the ones that matter to us. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. They That's have, the rub. You know, well, yeah, Lisa, yeah. listen. I mean, how many books on global warming have I read? I actually mm. really care about that and think it's super important but I haven't had the time to read any good books on that. There you go. Because I've been focused on this side of the world. Well, thank <laughs> thank God for, for you, uh, Lisa. And uh, thank you for hanging out for the last two hours. And uh, this is a, just one bombshell after another that you've laid on us tonight. Thank you so much. Great meeting you. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Lisa Peace, A Lie Too Big to Fail. Uh, available at uh, Amazon and uh, good bookstores everywhere. All right, my thanks to um, Faz and Albert and Ryan. Back next week with Gary Byrne from the U.S. Secret Service. He'll have some bombshells of his own, I'm sure. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. <laughs> 